Good evening and welcome to the talk section of Young Urban Zen. Um, I'm Michael McCord and I am the CFO of San Francisco Zen Center, which is three different temples, um, Green Gulch Farm, um, Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, I'm pointing up north because it's that way, Zen Mountain Center is down near Big Sur, and then City Center is here. And this is just a place that is an urban temple for you to come and to use for meditation, um, for basically working with the mystery that is you. And um, you don't have to be a Buddhist, and in the Buddhist culture, um, we don't have a specific goal for you, like we're going to make you into a Buddhist. Um, you, you might have a spiritual practice that's working really well for you, and if it is, then we encourage you to keep doing that. Um, also, if you want to talk to teachers or people around here, um, like myself, about um, establishing a meditation practice, um, or anything in regard to the temple or how to engage, you can um, look us up or you can email me. Um, if any of you are on the um, Yuz email list, um, then um, I am on there. and Or you can come up afterward and ask me and I can give you my email address. But, um, yeah, so a lot of what we just did here was um, a ritual. Um, how to sit, and first we aligned our bodies um, before we even align our bodies, if you were to come to meditation, which like I was saying at 5.30 in the morning, Tuesday through Friday, and then Saturday at 6.30 in the morning, uh, 6.25 in the morning, you come through the doors out there on Laguna and you can come into our meditation hall and you can sit with us. And same thing, three bells to start meditation. Somebody will tell you where to sit. Um, but in, in, when you would first come to your, your cushion, these things are called Zafus. And the Zafu, literally sitting um, cushion, Zafu, um, as opposed to Zazen, sitting Zen, um, you would um, have this at your seat. And in, um, in the tradition, we, we always pick these up with two hands. And they would, be, they would be at your seat. And when you would come to your seat, you would bow with two hands toward your cushion. And then you would turn clockwise. And you would bow away from your seat. And then you would sit down on your cushion and you would spin around and face the wall. And before you even did that, you would walk down the long hallway that comes into the meditation hall and you would walk in what we call shashu with the left hand kind of curled with the thumb in like that and the right hand on top of it like that as like a, a walking position. And as you went through the door to the meditation hall, you'd step through with your left foot. And you would step through and take a couple of steps and then you would do a gasho bow and then you would come back to Shashu and you would walk to your seat and then you would bow to your seat and that's actually thanking all the people who established this practice and came before us and kept it alive and then we would turn around and bow to the room and that would be thanking everyone who is sitting with us today that's supporting our sitting practice. A lot of stuff just to get to a seat to sit Zazen. Now, you could, in your home, take this same cushion and you could put it in a room that you're going to sit in meditation and you could be like, yep, time for meditation, it's 6.15. You could just plop down on your cushion and start sitting. And that does, you know, work in some sort of way. But if you had some sort of ritual to get you into, like, the whole sitting thing that gets you, like, connected to your body, that gets you connected to your body in space, like your foot stepping through a door, or your um, connection to the people who created this tradition before us, when you bow to your cushion, you turn around, the connection to the people around the world that are sitting with you today and sitting zazen 
um, in many different places. Then you sit down, and so there's this whole ritual that you're going into. And so ritual in the Zen temple is designed as a way to help individuals be with what's going on right now. And we all know what it's like to not be with what's going on right now in a conversation and you realize you weren't listening to the person. You came out of a meeting and you were just like, well, wait a second, they, all of a sudden they were in .8 and I only remember .4. Or you know, you're trying to remember um, what it is you just read in a book. Or there's all sorts of times you just, where you notice. But through a lot of you know, published neuroscience, we know that there's lots of little tiny blips that we never even notice where our mind is not actually with the thing that's going on right now. And that's been studied for years in places like this, Zen temples. And so there's lots of rituals that we have in the Zen temple. Now, you could come here and you could see the ritual and you could be saying, wow, that seems so formal. Like, um, that's almost like a barrier. I wouldn't want to come here and, like, sit zazen because I'd do it wrong. I'd come in the door wrong or I'd forget how to turn. And so because it feels formal, I don't want to, like, engage in, like, the practice at a a temple because I don't want to ruin somebody else's religious experience, you know. But um, guess what? (laughs) You can't do it wrong. (laughs) Um, If you show up and you're trying... All of these things that I'm telling you about, bowing to and away from your cushion, stepping through the door, how to hold your hands, all those things somebody made up. Somebody in the past made it up. And then through um, hundreds and hundreds of years of people sitting meditation and living in temples, these things have been tweaked and honed, like you know, time-tested um, ways of doing these rituals that help people be with what's going on right now. But if you do it different than what somebody told you as far as the ritual you haven't broken anything because there is nothing holy about the ritual the only thing that the ritual has to offer you is that if it helps you be with what you're doing and helps you connect to it on a heart level on a mind level on a right now level then it can start to take on some sort of specialness for you you might start to revere it or hold it in some sort of regard but that's your relationship to the ritual. It's not that the ritual itself inherently had anything in it. And that ritual over the next 500 years, who knows, might morph a little bit because of something you packed into the pond. So this is something that I want to say as far as the context of ritual, is the ritual at times can be a barrier, a barrier for um, feeling like something is incredibly formal, but it's not actually formal here because there's nothing that you can do that can really break the ritual if you start talking or singing in the middle of zazen somebody would probably come over and be like you know hey not here not now but um you know um it's it's not still like you know you've really ruined anything the person next to you is like you know maybe an experienced meditator and you're just like wow i was really distracted by that Hmm. i'm gonna hold that like a small baby and so, you know, it's, you're giving somebody the opportunity to practice because you broke the ritual. Um, this ritual is something that then is, is, is able to be taken out of the monastery. And that is where it really starts to come alive. Because the things that we do here, they're all, you know, geared back toward trying to help people have a practice place. We call this temple a practice place. And just like you have a practice place for basketball and you have a practice place for ballet, 
you have a practice place for different things that you do, and they're set up to support that type of practice. Well, what are we practicing for here? We're practicing for life. How do I be a human being? Has that ever stumped you before? How do I be a human being? Like, have you ever had the thought, and I had this thought a lot in my life, especially before I started practicing Zen, but even after I started practicing Zen, my life is not working. <laughs> like, there's no manual for this. Like, I wish there was a manual. I could turn to, like, page 16, and I'd be like, that, there, there's the thing. Yes, that's why the TV doesn't connect to my Bluetooth, you know, yes. Page 16, you know. But we don't get that manual, and nothing, no one hands us a manual that says, okay, Here's the manual, you know. So we don't even know the rules that we're breaking. All we know is the end result of the experiment, which is, yeah, I'm living life and it doesn't work. <laughs> and um, I'd really like it to work. Um, I also want to have fun. Um, but I, I do want it to work. I don't want to, like, be suffering all the time. And every time I have fun, then the, it seems like there's a counter where I have to, like, you know, have pain, you know. <laughs> and it's like, okay, is there some way that I could actually, like, enjoy life and then not have, like, tons of pain? And um, that's usually what people are trying to ask themselves is, okay, maybe I could put together a practice place with other people that are dedicated in having the exact same intention, which is how do I live a life and not suffer so much and enjoy it. Um, and this is what this is for. This is what the practice place is for. We are practicing for life. So like we were doing when we didn't scratch our nose. That is a ritual where we sit down and we do all these things and we're in a body posture and it's a somatic sort of exercise and we aren't moving and then my nose is itching. And then I'm learning to have acceptance practice. I'm learning to have that, um, that reservoir of holding kind of expand where it's like, yes, I can hold that without being overwhelmed. You know, I can hold that. I, I can learn to hold my bother without being overwhelmed. I don't necessarily have to chase away and go to war with every little bother. I can just be with my bother, and I can be with that. And you can learn to have that emotional reservoir kind of expand where you can deal with stuff. Because we all get to the place in life where we're, we're trying to all be adults. But you could look back to when you were, say, three, and you could see something that bothered you. And you'd be like, that wouldn't bother me now. That wouldn't overwhelm me now. I mean, at that point, like, everything, like, didn't exist. I mean, the, the planet could have just gone away. I was so incredibly overwhelmed when I was three. I just laid down on the ground and was, like, crying and thrashing around, you know? It was just like, I don't want the universe to exist. This life is terrible. I'm three, you know? And um, somehow or another, we grow up, and we're just like, yeah, um, that thing that happened doesn't overwhelm me anymore the same way that it did before. But then we plateau. We plateau somewhere as an individual where we kind of like, there's like some sort of adult level, like, okay, this is adult level of getting bothered, at least externally. In, internally, you all get bothered about stuff all the time. It's really, really petty, just like me. But there's like this adult-like level um, of getting bothered that you learn to externalize, you know. So if you have a really bad meeting, you don't go to the corner and lie down and start thrashing around and crying <laughs> and like, you know, like, the world can end. But you might feel that way inside. But the, the, the thing that bothered you is probably a little bit better, a little bit bigger than it was that caused you to be so overwhelmed when you were three years old. So what you do is you, you learn to sit. And this ritual starts to expand that internal reservoir of learning how to deal with your bother, learning how to hold what is coming up with acceptance, acceptance practice, not approval practice, like, yay, I'm angry. 
But, like, yeah, I'm angry. Yeah, I didn't choose to be angry. No one ever chooses anger. Like, okay, on the count of three, I'm going to get pissed. <laughs> one. <laughs> it's, no one does that, you know? Um, but, but, but you do inherit that, and all of a sudden it just takes over, like, a whole, you know, body feeling. Like, I am just, like, Ugh. And um, then what happens? Like, can you learn to hold that? And through this practice, the, through these rituals, you learn to start to put things in your life that allow that half-life of bother to increase, the rate at which bother starts to dissipate, the rate at which um, you're able to hold what's going on. And so we do these different things to bring us back to what's happening right now. Like when we drink in the monastery, we always are supposed to use two hands. And you're always supposed to sit down. You're just giving honor and you're connecting to the thing that's in front of you. And when we eat, we're supposed to actually eat and not like watch TV and listen to music and read the newspaper. We just like give our full attention to, you know, whatever it is, you know, your, your, your breakfast smoothie, your oatmeal, whatever it is you're into, you know, and you give that your full attention, you know. And when you make your bed in the monastery, you don't think about all the stuff that I'm going to do later on today. All you think about is turning bed into a meditation. And a meditation in the sense of now I'm dealing with pillows, and now I'm dealing with sheet, and now I'm dealing with covers. And I used to deal with pillows last, but anyway, I'm making an imaginary bed, so who knows? The pillows can just make their way underneath there. And then you have, like, you know, your comforter, you know, and then you've got the whole thing all, you know, flattened out. Or maybe you like it a little bunchy in the middle, just be a rubble, you know. And then, you know, then you've got your, your entire, like, bed made. As opposed to the whole time you're making your bed, you're thinking about that thing you've got to do at work and that thing you've got to tell that person and, oh, I didn't do that thing, I'm going to charge up my bike or whatever. You know, you don't, you don't think about all those little things. You just let those things come up like popcorn because they will come up. You don't go to war with the stuff, you know. I and mean, if you go to war with the stuff, it'll just try to come up more. You know, it's like trying to tell, like, a two-year-old they can't have something. They're just like, Wah! But, you know, it's just like, okay, how do we divert this energy? So you're going to get popcorn. Can you just be with the popcorn but not hold on to the popcorn and not tell stories about the popcorn? All the little things coming up in your head. Can you just keep working with the pillow and working with the sheets and working with the whole thing? And then you re realize you're starting to learn to be with the thing that's right in front of you. Because there's a lot of things in life that won't give you that opportunity or will make it so easy to be just with that thing. And so you have these rituals in the monastery that start to become sacred and revered by the individuals because it helps them be with the thing that's going on. And then we take up other sorts of rituals like um, we have a sewing ritual here. And I'm wearing a rakasu which is um, emblematic of the rice fields in China. And the rice fields in China are usually arranged so that you could pour water in one end, and then it would flow all the way through all five different sections of the rice fields, which are at different levels of elevation, and then it would come out the other end. So that is what this is kind of like the, 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 the zen of life um, and the what's happening now being viewed through everything. And the little tiny stitches are called rain stitches, and they're, they're back stitches. And every time you make a stitch in the rakasu, you say, Namaki Butsu, Namaki Ho, Namaki So. I take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. 
and then you you know pull it through and then do another one and it's just like this and you, and you actually sit upright while you're sewing and you sew the whole thing and then on the back of it there's a piece of white silk and when you're done sewing it you give it to your teacher and then your teacher takes it from you in a ceremony and then a few weeks later your teacher gives it back to you and on the back of it your teacher has done calligraphy and they give you a name and they usually give you a um a, a koan or something to think about and then you have an envelope that this goes inside and there's a very specific way that the the um the, it's taken off and then how it's actually folded back and then once it's folded back it's put into its envelope and it always has the pine stitch which is the back here that's a double-sided um where the you sew on top of each other and then it comes the same way on the front and on the back and then it's always slid into this envelope and you choose one of your sangha mates to actually make the envelope for you by hand. And it's usually somebody that you know that's um, um, clo close to you. And so then you have this. And then for any um, formal event or any zazen or anything like that, then you have a way of putting this on and taking it off. All these little tiny things are little tiny rituals that bring you back to the specialness of your practice. And when you get this back from your teacher, you take the precepts of how you wanted to live life. All those things that are happening are rituals, and they are anchors and scaffolding that allow you to do work. And it allows you to bring yourself back to what is this life, and what is this thing that I'm doing? Now, you can have the purpose for a ritual that you know right off the bat, like somebody could tell you this is the purpose for this ritual, and that can be great, you know, if, you, if you're one of these folks who always wants to know, like, well, why are we doing this, you know? Um, that can be told to you. Um, but it's also really great to engage in ritual without knowing and just see the effect of it. Like, huh, this is the effect of a ritual. And, and noticing the, the effect on you and on your body. And sometimes it's about being able to keep you, yourself focused and on a path to do, to do certain things. And other times it's about cultivating a certain mind state. Like, wow, I would really like to be a person that was more compassionate on a regular basis. But... I am just generally not compassionate. I'm usually fairly efficient, but I'm not very comp compassionate. You know, and it's like, well, how do I cultivate compassion? I know how to cultivate efficiency. Everybody talks about that. You know, people talk about people at work. They're like, you know, so-and-so, they're incredibly efficient. So-and-so, they're incredibly hardworking. Usually you don't start off in an executive review and you say, you know, so-and-so, they're so compassionate. And you're like, yes, we should promote them. You know? <laughs> And no one says, are they efficient? You know, it's just, it, it's so there's different things you, you, you aren't taught how to cultivate. Um, there's different um, mind states that might um, actually um, happen. There's, you know, learning ritual in order to work with um, different types of, um, um, different types of activity. Like as a CFO, sometimes I have financial models that I just cannot hold in my head. And if I see them on spreadsheets, they even confuse me more because I'm trying to figure out, okay, so I have profit and loss, and then I also want to have cash flow at the end of that, and I want to make sure I have depreciation, and then I have our cash reserve and how that goes up and down, and then I want to figure out what's going to happen with our checking account at the end of the year, and then I want to project that out over seven years, and eventually my head explodes where I'm just like, I can't. You know, but I actually personally have this ritual with stuff that I can't handle at work, and I take it right out of the Zen monastery. And what I do is I chew on it like a koan. 
So I have this pen and paper next to me and I write down what I know about the problem. And I just, I write down, okay, these are the different things that I need to define and these are the different variables and these are the things that affect it. Now, I, you would think that the next thing I would need to write would be a step further to solve the problem, right? No. In the Zen monastery, we learn to chew on koans, so all I do is I write what I just wrote over again. And I go, okay, so this is the thing that I need to do. And it's amazing, different stuff after like the third time of writing it down, one new thing usually will pop into my head about one of the things on the list. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, that thing. And then sometimes I'll do it last thing at night, and other times I'll do it first thing in the morning. And then it'll pop back into my head. I'll be like, oh, here's another thing. And I've learned that just like with koans, the realization starts to pop forward if I allow myself to not be so caught up in I have to solve this and the next step, next step that I make has to be a step forward, it might feel like a step backward. And this is a ritual that I've learned in working with koans and working with deep problems that are about the human psyche that we have in Zen. I apply this ritual to solving financial models. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. Now I actually see this ritual. And I actually have my book for solving problems in a certain place in my house. And then I go and I get it. And then um, there's a certain like kind of personal script that I use when I write these things down. And symbols mean different things. And I love it. But these are things that happen in order for us to do the work of being human beings. That's what ritual is. And so I want you all to engage in a ritual, and I'm not going to necessarily tell you why, but we'll see what the effect is. And um, this ritual um, we're going to do in dyads, and then we'll come back together. Um, but this is um, something I just wanted to have you all experience. So if First off, if you could just find a person near you, one person near you, where you can look face to face. It's even better if you do it with a person you don't know. But if you do know them, this will still work. And, um, and then get together and then, um, and then find the person that has the, um, the darkest socks. And then that person will go first. And if you're both barefoot, you have to do rock, paper, scissors. And then, um, and then I will tell you what the prompt is, okay? So find a person near you that you can face, and let's do a dyad, okay? All right, go. So that was an interesting exercise. I felt a lot of energy in the room. And this sort of exercise as like a ritual is something that um, symbolizes and also helps you cultivate a certain mind and body state that is different than what you felt before you started doing the actual ritual. And there are certain rituals that just put you in a different place, either with intimacy, or with your body connection, or with the other person that's around you. Because a lot of times in life, I mean, when was the last time you spent a, an entire minute making solid eye contact with somebody? <laughs> you know? In, you know, in, in silence, you know, and, and maybe especially, you know, somebody you didn't know before, you know. And there's something there that in the ritual of taking up a specific body posture, a certain set of context of how we're going to do this, and then a person's name, and then, you know, this entire construct, this just man-made, woman-made, whatever construct, and then we do it, and then 
we notice that there's some sort of impact. We start to notice the impact of the ritual. So the, the ritual itself is really quite empty, but the impact is something that you notice. And that's a ritual that usually almost anyone starts to notice the impact in some sort of way. It's interesting because everybody has a different um, um, seemingly experience of that. Um, some people want to laugh. Other people um, want to look away. Um, other people want to just, um, you know, um, cry. I've even seen that happen before. Or just like sadness starts coming out when intimacy starts happening. There's something intimate about looking in somebody else's eyes. And that is something that can bring you right back to a heart space. And how many times in life have you been caught up in workspace and you feel really far away from your heart space? And you feel like heart space is over here and I'm in functioning space over here. And this sort of ritual is the sort of ritual down the path of cultivating compassion, cultivating a heart space, cultivating intimacy. And when we did the bow to and away from our cushion when we first came into the zendo, that is an intimate thing where after a period of time, you actually know who the ancestors were who created this form of sitting. And you start to have your own sort of personal relationship with them every morning as you give gratitude to the fact that somebody created all of this ritual for you to engage in. And the heart space starts to open up. And this can actually start to open up in an accounting office with a spreadsheet, with a mouse, with an iPad, with a screen. These things actually can be done when you study them and you notice and you're actually looking for something. Because when you start to engage in rituals, you start to notice through the rituals the things that actually elicit the sort of body and mind states that you would like to replicate or that you're missing a little bit that aren't commonly in my life. Um, I even had someone do this exercise once that was very similar to this, and they said, I don't think I've cried in like three or four years. And then I cried in the middle of that, like, just two-minute ritual, you know, because it was just so intimate, and they had been separated from anything in their life that was really that connected. So what is it that cultivates things for you, that cultivates different mind states and cultivates different body states? These are the things that we study in a place like this, is the rituals and the power that they can take on in someone's life. And until they are something that is powerful for you, they are just simply hollow rituals. They're just stuff other people do. And you can see that and go, yeah, I don't know if that's for me, and people walking around in robes and being silent and doing this and bowing to each other and whatever. Well, there really isn't anything to it, and it can just look like you know a, a costume party. Um, but then when it starts to take on like some sort of other specialness for you, um, you know, I, I wear these robes to meditation in the morning and they're, they have these really long sleeves. I think they're designed for inefficiency so you can't do anything quickly, you know. And I mean, they're really long and I'm tall so they're proportionately, I mean, they're, they're probably, the opening of the sleeve is probably big enough for a lot of you to get in. And, <laughs> And then, you know, and then there's a certain way I have to fold them up before I sit down and then all the rest of it. And I've got my rakasu. And it just, it reminds me of what the practice is that I have signed up to do. And it's so much more intimate because of the ritual. And so as you go out into your life, you'll notice that there's lots of things that you can just plop down and do. 
And sometimes you have to do stuff that way. It's not wrong if you do it. But if you find yourself in mind states at work or in your personal life where you're like, you know, this just isn't really working. This hasn't worked and it hasn't worked for a long time. Then you might think about, are there maybe some rituals that I could put into my life? Or maybe before I even get to the place where I am at work, maybe I've already um, made my coffee and made my breakfast and made my bed and gotten dressed. All is a ritual. All just doing that one thing at a time. All just being with that thing and being connected to whatever it is. And maybe I, you know, remember something in the morning. That's the reason we have these altars. These altars are not because if we do a certain thing that we're going to be blessed by the Buddha. It is, um, is for us to remember in our minds what these things symbolize. And so you might have a little altar at home that just symbolizes something that reminds you how to be with your monitor when you get to work. That might symbolize how to actually be on a bicycle in San Francisco and not get mad. How to actually, you know, be with the life that you live and, um, and, and to, to, to bring you back to, oh yeah, you know, I'm in a different heart space when I get on my bicycle because I have this ritual and I remember the person that taught me how to ride my bike. And I am connected to this person who taught me how to read and I'm going to go to work and I'm going to read things. And so I'm going to think about the person that taught me how to ride my bike. And I'm going to think about the person who taught me how to read before I leave my house. And maybe I'm going to do a lot of math today. Who taught me how to do math? Or maybe I have some other form of job where I'm speaking in public or I'm leading meetings or whatever. Usually somewhere along the line we had a teacher or a mentor, someone we learned from. What if we had an altar that reminded us of those people or those activities or those things that we could connect to in a heart level that would touch us in the morning as opposed to just simply getting on our bike or our scooter or our car or whatever and heading off into the craziness of this world. And then you go out there and you're not quite as much in fight kind of mode. You're more kind of like in host mode, like... I have space for this person to make a mistake. Can I have this space for this person to make a mistake? And I'm not at war with all these folks. These things are the rituals that really live. And that's why this place is, is created, is so that people can learn how to be with the mystery of their life. So that is um, what I wanted to bring to you this evening.